Happy Friday. It's time for the Richard Skipper Friday Wrap-Up Show. Who and what are you celebrating today? Richard Skipper believes every day is worth celebrating. But today, we wrap up the week with a dose of positivity. You never know who might show up or what might happen. So get ready. Your skipper is now coming on board, and we are ready to set sail. All aboard. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. This is our Friday wrap-up show, so we're wrapping up the week, and we're wrapping up the month. Can you believe it? January has come and gone, almost. But as you all know, all this month, I've been celebrating National Book Blitz Month. This is to celebrate authors and their books. And I have four incredible authors waiting in the wings. I have all of their books right here on my desk. And believe it or not, I've read them all. So I am so excited that you're all here today. Uh, Let's see who is uh, watching. A few friends are here. Uh, Natasha Lombardi is here. Uh, Alan, uh, Sherry Callahan. Uh, Jeffrey Albright. Hello, Jeffrey. Ron Spivak. Russ Woolley is here. Uh, Tesla Bella, Doug McAllister, and Rosa Puzo. Now, before the show started, I asked uh, for Sherry Callahan to pull a number one through four, like let's make a deal. So number three is the door she pulled. None of our guests know who is behind door number three. But I'm going to give you a sampling of some of the authors that we have celebrated on this platform since I started doing this at the beginning of COVID. And you'll meet our first author on the other side. Not one, but two books. Ellen Matzer is here again. I am so thrilled that she's here. Uh, Her first book, Nurses on the Inside, uh, Stories of the HIV AIDS Epidemic uh, in New York City. And the second book, Beyond the Mask. Uh, The first book, obviously, uh, took us all back there uh, on the front lines of what it was like to be a nurse uh, during the AIDS epidemic. Why would she write a book on that subject? Because she was there. She's a nurse. And this was her first book. This is her second. And I'm sure and I'm hoping there will be many more. So, Ellen, thank you for being here today. Um, And as I always do on our Friday wrap-up shows, who or what are you celebrating today? Well, today I am celebrating um, my daughter, my daughter, Amy. Um, I am very blessed that she is with us and um, happy and on the road to becoming very healthy again. And so I'm very proud and um, very honored to be her mom. And I have been celebrating her every day. God bless her and God bless Amy. I know that you and I have corresponded about, uh, I mean, it's been a difficult uh, couple of months for Amy. And uh, you have shared with me, uh, when I will not go into details today, uh, just to say that I'm happy that she's on the mend and uh, that you're able to be here today. Um, Ellen, as I've said, I mean, with both of these books, I mean, the first book, of course, was about the AIDS epidemic and the crisis. And then you decided, along with uh, your incredible writing partner, uh, Valerie Hughes, uh, to uh, write a book uh that took us into COVID and what we were all going through. And the book came out in the throes of COVID with no idea of how we were going to get through this. But going through two epidemics like this, uh, what have you learned that you can share with all of us about yourself, your process in writing, and what all of us can do to hopefully alleviate something like this happening again? Well, I, I think, you know, when, when Valerie and I uh, wrote about our personal experiences with the HIV epidemic, I, at, at some point in the book, we had said uh, something about there being another epidemic, uh, pandemic, not, not knowing what would be coming forward. Um, I think that uh, we learned how to work together as a healthcare team 
um, under less than ideal circumstances uh, in, in the HIV epidemic. Uh, beyond the mask, I was actually not on the front lines. However, I interviewed many people that were. And one of those people was, in fact, my daughter, who was on the front line as a, as a physician's assistant in the in emergency room during the pandemic. And I drew on some of her experiences for that. And um, as far as, and what I, what I wanted to say about Beyond the Mask was that uh, a lot of that book had to be fictionalized only to protect the identities of people that we did interview as they were in fear of their jobs for exposing uh, back then having not enough PPE uh, not enough support, not enough staff, et cetera. And it was a very, very scary time for people there. I was teaching at the time. And then we ended up on, on Zoom, on virtual, because we were, we were asked to leave the facilities that we were on. Um, things have changed so much. And I'm glad that we wrote the book when we did, when we were in the throes of it, because as COVID becomes commonplace and the CDC talking about having the vaccination be annual along with your flu shot, we've forgotten about what happened back then. And we have forgotten about the people that we've lost. And, um, and I don't want to forget, just as I don't want to forget about the people that we lost during the HIV AIDS epidemic who never stood a chance. So, uh, again, um, I always use has hashtag well-lived lives, hashtag um, never forget. And that's the reason. I, I, don't, I don't think that I could write, the, write Beyond the Mask now um, because back then it was so fresh and unfolding. And when we ended the book, we didn't even have a vaccine yet. Um, so, you know, as... As time goes on, more and more people will have forgotten what it was like for those people that were on the front line. And, and when I speak of that, I not only speak of colleagues, but my daughter, my son, and my husband, all on the front line in different healthcare capacities. So I, I'm really pleased that it's out there. And I think that in years to come, when people have forgotten all about it, um, they will want to take a look back and see what happened. Well, I've been fortunate enough uh, to in-person interview both you and Valerie. Um, and I've had both of you on the show in the past, uh, both together and separately. And I know that you pulled Valerie into the process in both instances, as she's been, as she's told us. Yes. But what did you learn about yourself through the process of a collaboration uh, co-writing a book uh, with uh, a dear friend and uh, and a mentor, I would say as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, I I learned that I actually could write. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I didn't I didn't think you know as I for the first book I said I'm a nurse. What do I know about writing? And then just thoughts started flowing, and I realized how much I remembered about that time, which is now you know over three decades ago. And um, yes, and I did recruit Valerie into both books. And um, what we did was we, we tag team. I would write, I would send her what I wrote and she would kind of add to it. Or as we always called it, she would say, I'm going to do a little embroidery, Ellen. That's, a, that's what she would call it. Her editing was embroidering and send it back to me. And then it would spark another memory for me. And I would write some more or the, and then she would write some more and, send it back to me and I would, we would go back and forth like that. So oftentimes we didn't even feel a need to even speak on the phone. Um, we just did this through, uh, through email and, and reading. And then occasionally like we would say, wait a minute, we need to have a conversation about um, this or that. Um, uh, Nurses on the Inside was written with an indie publisher and they had a lot to say about the book and we had some issues going back and forth with them. So that was, that was a problem. Uh, Valerie and I wrote beyond the mask on our own completely. And we didn't have anybody making any suggestions about what should be there and what should not be there. 
Well, they're, they're both incredible books. I want to let everyone know that all of these books, everyone, are available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, if you choose to go there, or whatever your platform is that you want to get these books. Call your favorite bookseller and ask for these books if they don't already have them. And I know that some of you on there have read these books. Uh, I know from some of the comments that I've gotten in the past. Um, we're gonna bring on our next guest, uh, Ellen. You're actually gonna help us bring on the next guest. Okay. But before we do, as you know, I have four mystery questions. So pick a number, one through four. I'm gonna go with one. And your question today. Um, what's the first, maybe I asked you this before, I don't know. What's the first book that you ever bought? The first book I ever bought. Um, well, Pippi Longstocking in the South Seas. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> My childhood. I still. I still remember that story, those stories. Jeez, I know. They, well, they still hold up. They still hold up. Well, let's bring on our next guest. And so pick a number, one through three, and we'll see um, who our next guest is. I'm going to pick number one again. And that is my dear friend, Kevin Winkler. So see, you never know when you're going to be brought on. Now, let me tell you a little. Uh, Kevin is a librarian. He's an archivist. He's written these incredible uh, books on dance and the book that we're going to talk about today is Everything is Choreography, the musical theater of Tommy Toon. Um, about, was it, has it been two years, Kevin? No, or, a little over a year. A little over a year. Um, 15 Kevin months. and I co-hosted an event uh, for dancers over 40 uh, celebrating the amazing Tommy Toon, uh, who we both can consider a friend. Yeah. Um, You've written other books as well, but why a book about Tommy Toon, Kevin? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because um, um, I uh, Toon's musicals kind of defined my theater going when I when I moved to New York in the late '70s, and um, I was there for all of those shows when they opened on Broadway, and they were highlights of my theater going experience. And um, I had come to feel that in the last several years. Um, Toon had become a somewhat undervalued figure. Um, he hadn't had a show on Broadway in a while, and um, the shows, a lot of the shows hadn't been revived. And I thought someone needs to remind people what a fabulous talent, what a true artist of the theater he is. And then I thought, well, why not me? I'll do it. Um, so that, that was the impetus behind the book. And it's a brilliant book. And I, you, I've told you that before, but I mean it. Uh, so when you sat down to write this book, and this is something that I, the first words that we read in the book, are they the first words that you wrote? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, I had to do, a, I, did a, uh, I did a proposal and a sample chapter that I submitted to the publisher. So the first, the, the first words I wrote for the book were really the proposal and uh, and then the sample chapter, which was not the first chapter in the book, but was just one that I thought would be fun to jump in and get my feet wet with. Now, you were very fortunate because you got to sit down and talk with Tommy Toon. Yeah. What yeah. is one thing that you feel that you learned about Tommy that you didn't know prior to writing the book? Oh, oh boy, let's say. Um He's 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 a true creative artist. And, you know, that word artist gets bandied about very easily. But he truly he truly approaches his work um, from an artist's perspective. He doesn't simply take material and put it on the stage. He really shapes it, um, works with with writers, composers, lyricists to to. Create, to create um, uh, something unique uh, before it gets on stage. So he's, and and everything about the way he lives his life, uh, his home, the way it's decorated, um, uh, is, is uh, has, there's a sense of artistry. Absolutely. Everything. I have to ask you, uh, having been to his home a few times, um, is there a special spot in the house that is your favorite? Well, I love that. Um, 
I love that. Um, um, it's like a, a little ladder uh, arrangement. <laughs> exactly. That's where I was hoping you would in a, go. In a corner that has all of his 10 Tony Awards displayed on it. Uh, when you walk in, you can't help but notice it. It's the first thing, aside from the fabulous view, um, you can't help but notice this uh, this uh, whole whole statue, it seems like, of uh, Tony Awards. And so that's my favorite wonderful. Spot. Yeah. So, Kevin, you get to pick a mystery question, and then we're going to bring on our next guest. Uh, pick a number, one through three. Okay. Uh, uh, three. And your question is, um, well, I like this. It's a statement. I have the power to create change. What changes have you created in your own life in the past year when it comes to your creativity? What Hmm. Oh man, you you're asking some tough questions um, or tough statements. Um, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty. Um, I'm a pretty um, organized. Um, I'm a pretty organized and disciplined person. Um, but I can. I can. I can be kind of sloppy sometimes. So I've. Uh, I've set a personal goal and changed the way I structure my day so that I can write um, when I'm at my freshest and my most creative. Uh, and so that's a that's and that's been a big change for me. That that real uh, uh, new set of disciplines that I've imposed upon myself and they've been helpful and they've been very uh, they've helped me become more productive. Now, are you currently writing a book? I am. I am. I'm. I'm almost. Well, I'm about seventy-five percent through a new book. Yes. Are you able uh, to book about? Book? Sure, I will tell you. It's a book about the career of uh, Bette Midler. Wow. That looks at her um, her impact and her influence, uh, not just as an artist, but as a kind of cultural icon, specifically. Um, the way that she created her performing style or ethos in a very specific milieu. I'm sure you know what that is. Uh, mm -hmm. It was working uh, in front of a group of gay men, mostly semi-clothed, right. at uh, the Continental Baths in New York City in the very early 1970s, and how she expanded that style and transmitted it to a mainstream audience um, Without really, without really changing it much in any way, so she's really been a very an important conduit of a kind of gay sensibility to a broader mainstream audience. And of course, today she's she's as mainstream as you can as you can. That's get. true. That's true. What an amazing trajectory that she's had, and I can't wait. Number one, and I hope that you'll come back when Love the book is ready and we'll talk about it. So you bring on our next guest, one or two. Uh, two. And we are meeting actually for the first time. I am, first of all, uh, let me pull this book up. So he knows that he's coming on. And it's the Marble Fawn of Grey Gardens. And uh, Tony Maeda is here. I guess that's and I me. I thank Del Shores, who reached out uh, to me the other day, and he said, you have to have Tony on the show. That's and, so uh, Tony, I am the book arrived yesterday. It's so great. And, I, and you read it already? And I, uh, Well, I could not put it down. I've gotten halfway oh. through it, to be honest with you. But it is such an incredible book. Oh. And I'm looking at your bio and studying about you as well. And you and I have something in common. That I mean, you went to L.A. I came to New York. Mm -hmm. You went to L.A. expecting the classic Hollywood that you oh, yeah. were drawn to. And when yeah. I, I always joke that when I came to New York in 1979, I thought I was coming to uh, the New York of Breakfast at Tiffany's and Sunday oh, in New yeah. York. Yeah. And actually what I came into was Taxi Driver and Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very different world. Yes. But what I love about your career is even though that world that you were expecting did not exist, you made it happen for yourself mm. in terms of the work you do, the, the connections that you've made, the people that you've worked with, so many people that you've interviewed that are, you know, friends of mine, Carol Cook, who we just lost. Yes, God bless her. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. And wonderful, wonderful, dear friend. Yeah. Um, how did you get started? And, and I will get to your book in just a moment, sure. but how did you get started in that, 
area of the business. Well, it's so funny, as you said, you know, I came here, I came to Hollywood expecting to see William Holden at the Brown Derby. <laughs> you know, a total Lucy experience. And, or, you know, or Eve Arden, and I got Liza and Burton rent a cop and uh, some bad <laughs> Fox shows. So, uh, what I, well, it was actually very circuitous. I mean, I, I tried for a long time to, to know, to, to be an actor and I had some success. I was on some shows. I was on the golden girls, my very first show and which was amazing. So I had little moments like that, but I realized that it just wasn't fulfilling me creatively. I wasn't, plus I wasn't, you know, to work steadily in this industry is, is very, very difficult. So I always, uh, I always wanted to write. Um, I was always had a talent. I always felt my mother always said, I had a talent for writing um, and I met someone and we decided to, uh, he was a film historian and I wasn't sure what that was, uh, but I got a very, very fast uh, crash course in it. And I'd already kind of been doing it my whole life. I mean, I loved, as I said, I loved old Hollywood. I loved old movies. I loved old television, classic television. My first memory of life is the first episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I mean, I remember this stuff so well. So it just seemed like it just kind of organically happened that suddenly I was in a position where I was where I was researching these people and going to events and talking to people and meeting people. Uh, you mentioned Carol, which was one of the greatest, most painful days of my life, just because I was hurting so much from laughing. Um, <laughs> That's true. I had, uh, she's the only person that I ever that I actually peed on camera. I actually peed my pants <laughs> on camera <laughs> from laughing. I had a little and bit. She would she love was, that. She, oh, she knew, believe me. I said, I think I just went, and she went, oh, that's good. Um, she was amazing. So I got to meet these incredible people, like right at the tail end. You know, we, we just lost Carol, as you said, God bless her. She was around for 98 years. I'm so grateful that I got to know her for the last 10 and spend time with her. Um, you know, as I had mentioned Lucille Ball earlier, I got to work on the Lucy Show DVDs, uh, talk to these people, talk to Lucy Arnaz, talk to her, talk to Barry Livingston, these people that, were like fundamental in my life, you know? So to be able to talk to them about things and, and to get their perspective and just hear that history was a gift, you know? And if we just keep our hands off things, life kind of takes us in directions we're supposed to go, but we don't think we are. And Greg Gardens absolutely dovetails uh, right, in, right, right into that whole thing about things I've always loved and been obsessed with. And suddenly I find I'm, I'm writing about it. And I'm not only writing about it, but I'm writing about it with the Marble Fawn himself. I mean, Jerry is one of the most amazing people I've ever met and continues to be. So it was quite an experience. How did the, how did the meeting happen with you and Jerry the first time? Well, I was, at, um, I was originally doing a book on the Maisels, on all of their films. Mm -hmm. And we went to, my writing partner and I went to the Met in New York. We flew to New York to see Albert. He was, this was Albert was alive, obviously. Uh, he was doing, they were doing a screening of Great Gardens and he was going to talk before the screening. And then we were going to get together afterwards. And while he was talking, we heard this commotion and it was a full auditorium. It was at the Met. There was a commotion in the back. And suddenly this guy comes bounding down the center aisle. And I hear all these whispers around me like, it's Jerry, Jerry. Marble Fawn, Mark, Jerry, Jerry. And I turned to my friend and I said, I think that's Jerry. And he said, no, Jerry's dead. Oh. Because everybody <laughs> thought Jerry was dead. And sure enough, Jerry was very much alive and Albert introduced him. And afterwards I went up to him and I said, you know, we're writing this book. I would love to talk to you about your experiences at Great Gardens. So we met the next day at a coffee shop. Um, and I had the three most astounding hours I think I've ever had. I mean, one story after the other after the other was more astounding than than the next and not just about great gardens but about his entire life you know the things the other people he's met and had experiences with what a childhood and, he had and oh, the childhood God. and i realized that i said to him that this time you know this is a story that needs to be told your story because it's not only about great gardens it's about addiction and recovery it's about surviving childhood abuse it's about you know claiming your identity it's about the family that you create as opposed to the family that you're born into which is everything he did so yeah so we decided the Maisel's book didn't work out and i said if you still want to do this let's do it and uh it took us uh, 10 years wow <laughs> six of which were editing so ellen i have sympathy with you when you talk about your independent publisher because <laughs> Same thing. And wow, the battles, wow, the battles we went through, 
but uh the book as it is is what we're 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 pretty proud of it we, well you we should uh, be proud of it um what is the one thing that you learned about the beals that you oh, uh God. that really surprised you above all others i mean everyone has uh this image of who they are uh, right. based on not only uh the documentary uh a broadway musical and uh a you know, TV movie, movie that, yeah. uh, you know, with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. Um, and uh, and I've seen many productions of the musical Grey Gardens. Uh, did you ever go to Grey Gardens? Yes, 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 I did. I did before this last renovation. I went in 2010, 2011, around then, when, it, when Jerry and I first started talking about writing writing the book. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just the bare, the bones are the same, but you know, there's no cats, no raccoons, no holes in the ceiling, no. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, it's an astounding place. Even more so now that they did it again, they renovated it. No, it's a beautiful place. It's I've, gorgeous, I've gorgeous myself. But I, think, I love what Jerry, what Jerry and I say in the book is to him it was always gorgeous, you know, because it was his home. It was his refuge um, from all the craziness in his life. I learned so much. It's so hard to pinpoint I mean, I, 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 had, I came to have so much respect for these women who basically took just the shreds of their lives and lived in such utter degradation with such dignity and such kind of absence of knowledge of it, really. Um, Mrs. Beale, I think I was surprised to find out that Mrs. Beale was the font of wisdom. Now, you know, a woman who's living in the conditions that Mrs. Beale is living in, you wouldn't think people would go to. For wisdom, but she would. She would get phone calls from Aristotle Onassis to comfort him after his son died because of the Jackie connection. Mm -hmm. Jerry always went to her for advice, and he said that she was so she had such wisdom about life, um, which I thought was amazing. And I, what I the love about Edie is the story that that uh, Jerry told about Edie was that Edie, you know, was quite the debutante. I mean, she really was the golden child uh, of that generation. And she went out with, she wasn't engaged to uh, Joe Kennedy Jr., but she went out with him. Mm -hmm. And she also went out with Howard Hughes, which I was, you know, being a film buff, was blown away by. But she stopped seeing Howard Hughes because she told her mother that he was too eccentric. <laughs> wow. wow. Compared to Edie Beale. So <laughs> these women were, had a, a grasp of reality, um, of their own reality, which was, you know, their delusion, I think, is admirable in many respects, and we can all use a little bit of it sometimes. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to let you pick a mystery question, one or two, okay. and then we're going to bring on our next guest. I'll go with one. And, I, and uh, Tony, I would love to have you and uh, Jerry on the show. Perhaps we'll oh, do I love a whole that. show celebrating Great Gardens. I would, love, would it. love that. Um, I would love that, yeah. So, um, well, I'm going to ask you this. What's the most embarrassing thing? Uh, well, I think you just shared with us. Oh, Carol. Uh, you know. <laughs> But what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you during an interview? And that was embarrassing. Was that was thing. Nobody, nobody knew that but me. I mean, I could just tell because, I mean, I was in pain. I was laughing so hard. Gosh, the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me during an interview. Um, probably doing the entire interview with a piece of spinach on my teeth. Is that, does that sound? That's pretty, it's pretty horrifying when it happens. Now it doesn't sound oh well, so we had spinach on his teeth. But at the time when I when I I'm like, why didn't why didn't you tell me? Why didn't somebody tell me? So from then on, I always had somebody at the side to make sure everything was okay. Um, but yeah, that was that was that was kind of that was kind of embarrassing. Well, you are a film buff, and uh, our next guest is in a classic film. Uh, before I bring her on, uh, she was in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, incredible scenes with Harvey Keitel. I saw her the other day and I said uh, she should have gotten an Academy Award on that performance alone. Uh, but she has a new book out. I'm going to bring this up on screen. Uh, it's a new memoir and it just literally uh, just came out. And it's called An Unruly Imagination, Lane Bradbury, uh, the original Dainty June from wow. Gypsy on Broadway. Lane Bradbury, I love you so much, as you know already. <laughs> and I'm thrilled that you're here and congratulations on a fun read. Oh, good. Yes. So 
what was the impetus uh, for you to sit down and write this book? Well, <clears throat> it was during the pandemic and I, I sat down to write a cabaret show and the cabaret show just kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer and longer until I had a memoir. So <laughs> it, it, it just, it saved me, you know, because I, I had something creative to do during this time. So I really actually was writing two things, but the, the memoir just took over and then I went back and cut it into slices so that it now, um, it now, the cabaret show is now called We Must Remember These Moments, but um, it, it was a savior to me during that time. Now, Lane, did you keep journals over the years or was this total recall as you started to write the book? Well, I have kept journals, but um, I, I've sort of stopped that habit. I wish I would go back and do that again, but I think I looked... I looked at some of the journals, but most of it is things that just really stayed in my head from life. Mm -hmm. And as you were writing this book, what are some of the things that came up for you that really surprised yourself about yourself? I mean, you know, the mind has a funny way of looking back on our past and, uh, and shading certain things. Um, what surprised you the most about looking back over your life and career? My goodness, you ask hard questions, sugar. <laughs> um, <laughs> what surprised me the most? Um, you know, I, um, I was not always a good little girl. And um, I think maybe the thing that surprised me was that at at the end of everything, I felt like that I I had learned an awful lot, and I and I had become um, a broader person. I I understood I understood things more deeply um, than the way that I was brought up, and. Um, and I, there's a place in the book where a psychiatrist asked me, what, what do you like about yourself, Lane? And I thought for a minute and I said, this little soft place under my chin. And he said, is that all? And I said, yep, that's all. And so I, I realized I liked all of me better, you know, because of, because I had metamorphosed in mm -hmm and learning, you know, and, and it helped me in a, a more, a positive way. Negative, negativity had helped me to become a more positive person, I guess. <clears throat> and as you were writing the book, did you have outside eyes looking at it as well, uh, guiding you as you were going along? Or did you no, pretty much choose? It was, no, it was just me just kind of going through the steps. Uh, when did you know that the book was ready for the publisher? Uh, was it a decision that you made? Was it an editor? Was it the publisher who said, Lane, it's time? When did you know it was time to give birth to this book? Um, well, I had a couple of people read it, and then I, w I went back and redid some things. And, and then I just thought, well, I'm, it, here we are. And I sent it to, I sent it in to, Amazon with with a lot of help from a friend um, because I'm not very good at all this computer stuff. So well, well, it's a great read, and again, it's called an unruly imagination. What a great title! Uh, how did you come up with a title for the book? Um, because it, it's my imagination has always kind of driven me sometimes into good things, sometimes into bad things. And it, but it's, it, it kind of, it kind of has ruled me, you know, so I just came up with it. That's wonderful. <clears throat> so one of the things that I want to do with all of you is that I've got some uh, just random questions that I pulled on the creative process. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Ellen. And it says, uh, 
this is um, an interesting thing that I pulled from my daily acts of kindness calendar. And it says unsubscribe from email lists that you aren't interested in anymore. Uh, I hope I'm not on that list, by the way. Uh, so, um, I mean, do you have a very full inbox? Uh, and if so, what do you do to help get rid of the clutter? Uh, yes, I do. I have a very full inbox. However, it is, for some reason, it is mostly offers to be a travel nurse. Um, mm. That has been happening since the COVID pandemic. Um, mm. You get on the list uh, uh, through the government as a nurse and um, you get offers and they keep coming and keep coming. And, um, and then I just, I don't, somebody once told me, don't ever unsubscribe from anything because it puts you at risk to be scammed. And really? so I just remembered that. Yes, it was at an orientation for a, a position I, I did have one time. And one of the HR people was, was saying that don't ever unsubscribe because then it documents actually who you are and makes it more, makes it easier for people to scam you. So I never unsubscribe. I just delete. Wow. And I've never uh, done that so, before. Yeah. And now I, I'm trying to remember because it was so many years ago, but I just, I never forgot that. So I never unsubscribe to anything. I just delete it. And then, and then of course, then the texts come seeing recruiters from all, all over asking me if I want to work in Oklahoma and in a, in a, in a neonatal ICU. I, I'm not a neonatal nurse and, and you know, just everywhere. <laughs> Uh, so that that's where my inbox is is cluttered with. Wow! But I don't unsubscribe. I just delete it and move on. Uh, Kevin, uh, this may seem like an unusual question, but it's all about creativity. Hmm. When was the last time that you saw a beautiful sunset and you were truly able to enjoy it? Uh, would you believe yesterday? Oh, good. Uh, I'm I'm down here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we had beautiful sunsets just about every night. Today it's it's kind of overcast and drizzly, but we have a beautiful sunset almost every night, and uh, I appreciate it every time I see it because when I'm in New York, uh, half the year uh, I usually don't see the sunset, but here in Florida it, they're just gorgeous. Somebody, and maybe one of you will do this, needs to write a book on how to find the beautiful sunsets in New York. Because Ellen will tell you they are there. And you just have <laughs> to be are. at the right spot at the right time. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's there. Yeah. Um, Tony, what is the um, last thing that you volunteered for? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, um I volunteered for a, uh, I work with the Los Angeles LGBT Center. So thank you for that. your answer there. <laughs> so I do a lot of volunteering. Um, but the last thing I did was this very, very cool, we called it intergenerational Thanksgiving, uh, where our senior community and our homeless youth community, unfortunately, um, got together and celebrated Thanksgiving, which was really, really kind of wonderful. We tried we wanted them to be together, but they kind of naturally segregated into little areas. But they were all together in the in in the in the feeling of the day, and some of them sat together. But that was yeah, that wasn't that long ago. So that was pretty much the the last thing I did. It was very very wonderful. Wow, what an amazing thing to do! That's great, um, Lane. And maybe we know this with this book, maybe not. But the question for you is: When was the last time that you accomplished a personal goal or a dream? The last time, um, um, well, <laughs> I think finishing the book was one. Um, I, I feel like that I do that almost every day. I mean, I, I'm working on this new cabaret show. I love who I'm working with. Um, James um, Beeman, I get, who is an, a brilliant director. Yes. Yes, and, and Michael Roberts, who's my accompanist. And, I mean, shoot, now just getting through a ballet class, that's an accomplishment. So, <laughs> you know. Um, 
Well, God bless uh, you for I, doing it. <laughs> uh, Ellen, uh, have you recently tried any new habits or hobbies as we're going into the new year? Well, um, new. No, no. I mean, I, I picked up running. I, I, I mean, Richard knows this, but I, I had two hip replacements, one earlier in, in 19, in 2019, in 2022 and one in 2019. And, um, I had, uh, was running and I had accomplished 25Ks coming in one time first in my age group. And then I picked up running again. So this is my, my new goal again is to get back up by I'm up to two and a half miles again so good for you God bless you for that you know I'm I wanted my my goal is to do a small duathlon which is run bike run and I will be doing it in October and uh and I will be raising money for a cause at the time um probably something to do with mental health um but that's that's my goal so that's my, that'll be my new habit now, combining running, biking, and then running again. How's that? That sounds great. Uh, Kevin, when it comes to your creativity, um, what do you hope that your life will look at, like in eight years if you continue oh down the path that you're going now? Oh, my God. Um, uh, eight years. I'm trying to figure, let's say, eight plus however old I am. Uh, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm alive. Well, I, um, hope so too. I hope that I've had um, uh, many travel adventures. I'm looking forward to getting back to traveling. Um, uh, I'm still, I'm still, still haven't done much traveling since the pandemic, but I hope that I will continue to to write and to create and to to keep busy and to keep active. I think that's uh, that's a key to uh, staying young and vital is to, uh, to constantly be doing something that you enjoy and that stimulates your mind and your creativity. Good for you, great answer. Um, Tony, uh, what part of your career do you most love and wish that you could do more of? Oh, wow, that's easy. Talking to these old, wonderful, wonderful uh, icons. I don't know if like, celebrity, but these people who were movers and shakers, unfortunately, there are fewer and fewer I know, I know. of them as we go on. Uh, I feel incredibly fortunate, incredibly fortunate <laughs> that I was able to talk to the people that I was that passed, you know, and um, I, I, I love film. You know, I, one of my goals is to get on TCM eventually. Um, hopefully that will happen. So that was, pro- that's probably one of my, my Dave Carter, if you're watching, this should happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be great. No, I would love that as well. I'd love to see you there. Um, Lane, what is it very easy for you in your career that other people might find difficult? Um, I, I feel like that um, I was given kind of a sense of truth and um, some, just a sense of truth that, that kept me from acting, acting instead of being. Mm-hmm. You understand that? I know exactly what you're saying. Okay. Um, and I, it, I, I mean, when it comes to your work, I mean, there's such a realism in your acting that is, it just jumps off the screen. Well, I think, you know, I think that was a natural gift. And then it got reinforced when I became a member of the actor's studio that I, and I stopped saying acting, I started saying being, because acting can be acting, you know, Mm -hmm. and being is being, and it's true and real. Um, I I would love, um, I would love to make some contact with you, Tony, about the LGBTQ community, because I'm very concerned about them now. And uh, I've, I have an idea about, um, in fact, I've written a song about the, that community, and mm-hmm. I think Michael Roberts is going to um, put music to it. Oh, wow. And I, I, I want to do something that goes 
maybe on YouTube um, that will help um, all the negative. Oops, all the negative stuff that's that they're having to deal with now yeah. in this world. Thank you. I will definitely, definitely. Yeah. Let's let's. Okay, you know, good. Touch each other. in touch, yes, absolutely. We'd love that. That's great. And God bless you, Lane, for doing that. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, wonderful. I mean, wonderful. the LGBTQ community, especially our youth, are going through a very difficult time right very now. Very difficult, very difficult, yes. yeah. Yeah. Uh, God bless, yeah. Well, God bless you for that. Um, Ellen, um, I'm going to put you on the spot with this next question. Um, you, I mean, you have... Uh, become, if you weren't already, a brilliant writer uh, with your two books. I can't wait for the next one. And I've got an idea for you that I want to talk to you about privately. Um, but, and again, I'm putting you on the spot with this question. Um, and and what I want you to answer honestly, okay? Do you offer any creative services for free? If yes, why? And if no, why not? Creative services. Um, well, I mean, I guess I would have to understand your version of creative services. I mean, well, for example, maybe a workshop in writing or, you know, uh, or the knowledge that you have. Well, uh, I offer, I mean, I don't offer tips on writing or I, you know, any, anytime an indie. Uh, author has reached out to me and asked, you know, how I, how did I go about publishing or how did I query, you know, my process? I'm always happy to share that. Um, what I, I do offer is my students. I'm a, a professor now of nursing and um, I do a lot of tutoring, extra tutoring and assisting students who are um, trying to become nurses uh, with their studies and with understanding how to put what they learn in the classroom in the clinical facility. So I, I do that. So to me, that's being a nurse in this day and age, you need to be very creative with the diminishing supplies, diminishing staff, lack of support from administration. So the nurses are just going through a horrific time here in New York. Yeah, I mean, and, and really everywhere else. I mean, nurses are leaving the profession in droves, and um, it, and especially in the long-term care facilities right now. Mm. And what we're what we're getting now is in the long-term care facilities is people who had survived but didn't quite make it from long COVID. So people who are mm. kind of stuck mm. on a ventilator like forever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so uh, they're getting the brunt of the lack of services and staffing. Um, and, you know, just to piggyback off of what Lane was saying and Tony, um, you know, I, I'm so pleased to hear that you've written a song for the LGBTQ community and going back to say that they have suffered for decades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've yeah. been there. Yeah. You were there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, seeing what happened and and now uh, certainly what's happening with our youth is is just astonishing um you know valerie, valerie and i donate the proceeds of both of our books uh to any worthy cause sometimes it's nursing students sometimes um it's gmhc uh lgbtq trevor project i mean everything everything that we get which is you know if you're authors you probably know is minimal unless you're <laughs> John Grisham. Um, it, you know, there, to me, there's you know, there's no better way than to just uh, donate it to somebody who needs that's, it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, Kevin, what is it about your writing that is unique to yourself that no one else uh, can do? Oh my God, Richard! You're asking. You asked some tough questions. Oh man. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> you might as well ask me how I grab a star from the sky. <laughs> but if anyone can do it, Kevin, you can. <laughs> um, I like to think I have a a, a perspective, a, a sense of humor uh, uh, that I apply to what could be considered rather dry subjects, um, uh, kind of documenting 
Broadway. Well, that's not a dry subject, but no, no, a, a serious that. subject. A serious subject. No. I like to think I have a, a light touch um, uh, with with my writing in that in that area. Um, and uh, I don't know. I guess a certain uh, way with a phrase, perhaps. Um, I don't. I'll have to think about that and, and get back to you in, in more detail. That's a tough question. Well, I think you've answered, but, uh, you know, good for you. And, uh, Tony, um, how do you most enjoy helping others in within the industry? Within the industry? Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> These are tough questions. <laughs> Richard, you're right. Gosh, within the industry. Which industry are you talking about here? <laughs> uh, in the uh, business. In show business, you know, um, try to discourage people not to do it. <laughs> that's fine. Uh. <laughs> no, um, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. I, I hope that I can be honest with people. I mean, I don't get a lot of questions about what I do, but I hope if I do, I hope I'm just honest with people about how incredibly difficult it is as, you know, Lane and Kevin. And I mean, you can certainly say to attest to it's just you've got to got to got to love it with everything. You have to have no other choice. So I actually try to gently <laughs> steer them in another direction if it's at all possible. Um, I remember I was in an interview once I read with um, Betty Davis and somebody said to her, um, how do I decide whether I want to become an actor? And she said, if you have to ask that question, don't become an actor. <laughs> and it's like that's kind of it you know what i mean if there's and any she also said learn mind, to be hated in the business she said what learn to be hated in yeah the business. well she would know i mean because my god talk about a woman who who stood up for everything that she believed in mm -hmm. god it's amazing but so i tried i but so i feel that kind of really realistic um advice is the best advice i can give and hopefully helps people and then they'll go on or they won't you know that's 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 the way it is so I think I kind of, kind of sort of answered that. That's a tough one. So, Lane, have you ever experienced in this business jealousy of another artist? And if so, how did you get past that jealousy? Well, yes. Let's see who. Um, I, I, I certainly have experienced jealousy. Um, <clears throat> you deal with it. And then it's such a negative. If you're jealous, it's it's such a negative place to be that at some point you've just you've got to maybe just get through it and then go to work on your um, go to work doing what you what you yourself need to do to get where you need to be. But it, as long as you're de as long as jealousy is on top of you, it's almost like you're immobile. Mm -hmm. So you better damn well get past it. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, this is going to be my final question for all of you. Uh, each day I pull a word of the day and the word that I pull today is vulnerability. Mm. And I want to ask each of you in this business, all of us, are vulnerable every time we step in front of the camera, every time we sit down to put our words on paper. Um, so my question for each of you is, when do you feel that you've been the most vulnerable in this business, either as a writer or in any other area of your career? And the pluses and the minuses that came out of being in that position. And I'm gonna start with you, Ellen. Well, you know, as as an author, that that came about um, just as, kind kind of as a dare. So I I didn't I didn't really feel any vulnerability there. You know, it, I we wrote what we wrote, and it came out, and and um, nurses on the inside is sold actually pretty well. Uh, at, um, Beyond the mask is is actually doing better now, but I I have to say that my vulnerability lies with uh, nursing and um, wondering or hoping that I will make a difference with every patient's and student's lives that I touch, that somehow I will let them have a better day, a more comfortable day, a more pain-free day, 
a day that doesn't uh, have them have a complication that sends them back to the hospital or, or worse. Um, so, you know, I have to think very carefully when I'm teaching my students, you know, I, I always tell them, if your gut says something's wrong, something's wrong, and you need to investigate that. And I said, I never override my gut. If I walk into a room and I see somebody, a patient, and there's something about them, and I may not know what it is right away, and something tells me something is bad is going to happen, I never ignore that feeling. And I said, and then we investigate. And it has always served me well in my almost 46 years in the nursing profession. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, Kevin, same question. Um, I, I think I'm at my most vulnerable when I'm literally, well, I'm not looking at, when I sit down to write, I'm not looking at a blank sheet of paper, but when I look at a blank computer screen hmm. and know that um, uh, I want to fill it and not sure exactly how I'm going to go about filling it, uh, that black, blank screen uh, can make you very vulnerable. I, I feel that. Uh, it's a humbling uh, mm. experience to uh, look at a blank screen and be at the very beginning of a project. Uh, but the, the flip side of that, of course, is that when you fill it and you're happy with the way you have filled it, uh, there's nothing more satisfying and nothing more empowering. Great. True. Tony? True. Uh, probably right before that, uh, they point at you and say, go. <laughs> Start talking um, on on a lot of these things that I do because, uh, you know, in these conversations I have, there's no scripts. I mean, it's, I mean, I have ideas about what I want to ask, but I don't know what the answers are going to be. And that's, a, that's very vulnerable, mm -hmm. but it's also very wonderful because it's very open. And that's when, you know, that's when the inspiration comes. That's when the ideas come. So I love that feeling. I, I mean, it's frightening, but I love that feeling of being vulnerable and open to what the situation or what the moment may bring. And it's usually in those situations. Yeah. Great answer. That's great. Uh, Lane. When you say vulnerability to me, I think of working with Jerry Robbins. Oh. Because he... He, he, to me, he was a complete tyrant. And I, he, at one point we were working, we were working on the crossover scene, you know, in Gypsy where the, where the young uh, Dainty June becomes the older Dainty June. And it's just a running backwards. I got so, I got tied into such a knot. I literally couldn't move. And so, and I, I've thought about that so much and, and I've said to myself, I will never, 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 ever make somebody feel like that. And I think now that if, I mean, I was so young then, now I think if anybody ever did that to me again, I would say, look, you know, you want something for me and I want to give it to you, but the way you're going at it, you are completely destroying everything. So I, I just would stand up for myself, but I, I didn't, ballet had always been such a love effort for me and, and, and with a teacher that, that, that I respected and loved. And it was just such a shock running into this demon um, that, I, I just didn't know how to, to, I didn't know how to cope with it. Wow. What a great lesson to come out of that though. So that's yeah. great. Um, I can't believe that we are at the end of this. Uh, I hope you've all had as much fun as I have getting to know all of you. Um, and Tony, I do want to do that great garden show. Oh, so, I love that. I love yeah, that. We'll yes, that happen. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to give my final comments for the day, and then I'm going to turn it over to Ellen. You will pick the next person, and then you'll pick the next person until the last person's standing. Um, and don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as the last person says goodbye, the final credits will roll, and I will end the show. Uh, but uh, when it comes to vulnerability, uh, I've been thinking about this myself. Um, every single time that all of us uh, step in front of a camera, we step on stage, 
we sit down to write on the page, we send those books out into the world, we are at our most vulnerable. And it's how we process it. You, you have no control over how other people are going to show up or not show up. Uh, you only have control on how you respond to those situations. Mm -hmm. um, Carol Cook, uh, and I can understand Tony because I've been in the same position so many <laughs> nights with her and Tom, uh, just laughing and laughing and laughing. She was truly one of the funniest people on the planet. Um, I had a talk with them both on uh, Christmas Day. Oh, uh, good. God, we had uh, that day. I produced her last show in New York. Oh. And when we brought her to New York, uh, it was at 54 Below. Uh, their first response was they didn't think that she would be able to sell tickets because she had not performed in New York in so long. And I said, let's just book her. Let's see what happens. And we booked her. And uh, in two days, she was sold out. Yeah. So they added the second performance and she killed both of them. Mm -hmm. And at that time she was 96 years old, uh, 96 years young, I might add. Uh, but she went out there and she gave and gave and gave. Uh, it reminded me of something that Carol Channing once said. She said, in this business, there are entertainers and there are performers. Mm -hmm. An entertainer uh, is concerned, uh, is always focused on the audience. A performer is only thinking of themselves. Mm -hmm. A seal is a performer. It's mm -hmm. only looking to balance a ball on its nose, flap its wings to get a fish. It's only looking for the reward. So I think that we all need to hold on to our vulnerability. We need to keep putting it out there. Uh, we have to realize that each and every day is a gift and go out and do the best job that you can possibly do. And those that are going to show up are going to show up. And those that aren't, you have no control over it. So right. just let it go. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone and call a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. Uh, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know how they matter in your life. Go a step further. All of the links for all of these books are going to be on my YouTube channel. Please buy these books, buy two. Buy one for yourself and buy one for a friend. Uh, and just keep it going and keep it going and keep it going. A dear friend of mine once said, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I don't care mm -hmm. if you're on a yacht or a sailboat or a canoe or a raft, or if you're on a tugboat pushing everything upstream. Whatever boat you're in, just make sure that you do it with a skipper by yourself. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to leave the screen. And Ellen, it's all yours. It's all yours. Well, it was a pleasure meeting all of you um, yeah. and, and speaking with you. And um, it, it's funny, other than when Richard had interviewed myself and my uh, co-author and colleague Valerie about our books, I've I've been invited to be a mystery guest and I end up with uh, people that are in the performing industry. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm always, and I'm, I'm the nurse in the room, but um, I, I think what I, what I wanted to, to leave you with is that, you know, our, I combined my love of the nursing profession and uh, <coughs> wanting to get a message out through our two books, Nurses on the Inside, about the HIV AIDS epidemic and Beyond the Mask, about the COVID epidemic, that there's a, a large disparity in who gets care and who doesn't. And it was that way in the late 70s, early 80s and 90s with the HIV epidemic. And it certainly was more apparent uh, with COVID pandemic. Um, with the HIV AIDS epidemic, remember, there were no cell phones, there was no social media, there was no documentation the way that the COVID pandemic was documented. So a lot of the inequities in healthcare were not as well documented back in the HIV AIDS epidemic as they are now. Mm -hmm. And, but they really are the same. Certain people 
are given rights to health care and others are not. And it should not be this way. And so I leave you with that thought that um, everybody, a virus doesn't discriminate. A virus mm-hmm. is just a virus looking for a host. It's so true. Care should not discriminate either. People deserve health care, people deserve education, and people deserve access to all these things. And I appreciate um, all of your um, listening, and um, I will certainly be reading your books. Um, And I will hand it now to um, Tony. Thank you, Ellen. Um, I don't know if you can hear me, but I think that you're a rock star. Uh, My mother was a nurse. My sister's a nurse. Where would we be in this world? I wouldn't be here without a nurse. Literally, I wouldn't be here without a nurse. Um, So thank you. And you guys, Lane and Kevin, wow, so great to hear your stories. Um, Thank you, Richard. This has been a wonderful experience. I just want everybody to go out and read a book. Get these amazing books. Read a book. Go somewhere different in your life. Take a trip. It's the best way to travel. And no danger of getting COVID by doing it. So thank you, everyone. I look forward to coming back with the Marlfon himself, Richard. Um, God bless you guys. Thank you. I throw this to Lane. Well, it's been a thrilling experience for me, meeting you all, um, learning, especially the things that I didn't know that nurses have to go through. My goodness gracious. Um, And... um, I'm just thankful that I got to be on this show. Kevin, it's up to you now, I guess, to close. Lane, thank you. Um, I, you know, when Richard reached out to me about this, I thought, well, how is this going to work? And he said, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Um, this has been such a pleasure to, to hear your stories, Ellen and Lane and Tony, uh, to hear your stories. Um, of creativity, of resilience, of vitality, and great heart. And uh, it just, I feel great after an hour in your presence, uh, hearing from you. And uh, I, I think I'll end by saying, Richard Skipper, thank you uh, for bringing us all together. You're the, you're Dick Cavett and Johnny Carson and Dinah Shore all rolled into one. And uh, uh, I've, it's been a delight being here with all of you tonight today. So thank you all very, very much. 